Welcome to ASM Connected, the podcast brought to you by ASM Technologies. Across the series, we explore the emerging trends and tech and meet key speakers, futurists and business leaders from across the globe. In this episode, ASM Technologies' Ian Tomkinson and Stephen Dale talk through the education sector with Sophie Bailey. Sophie is the founder of the EdTech podcast, a podcast that helps the education sector and tech companies work together. Sophie talks through how the education sector copes with digital innovation, the opportunities for tech companies, and the technologies that the education sector will rely on in the future. All of that to come on ASM Connected. Welcome back to the ASM Connected podcast. Uh, today's episode promises to be another great one, but the, the spin on this one is that our guest is quite an experienced and successful podcaster herself. Welcome to the podcast, Sophie. Thanks very much for having me. Great to be here. Excellent. So before we get into the tech side of things, your podcast is about storytelling, and I, I'm keen for you to be able to tell your story about um, you know, where did you come up for the idea? How did you grow it to be so, so successful? Yeah, well, um, like with many things, it, it was all a sort of strange alchemy. But um, yeah, I guess the backstory was I worked in technology events for sort of 10 years. So going around the world and um, launching technology events in different areas of convergence with other industry sectors. So that included things like smart cities and what was then mobile healthcare, mobile payments and mobile banking and everything in between and that always gave me this understanding of two different audience types coming together and there being a need to sort of understand the the pace and the culture of the different sectors so usually being technology running a million miles an hour and then perhaps some of those other sectors so healthcare education being slightly more conservative for various reasons, having to wrangle with regulation, that kind of thing. So I was kind of always aware of the need to sort of provide a bridge to allow innovation to thrive by, you know, bridging those two different cultures. What happened with the EdTech podcast was that um, at the time I was working as the head of content for a large educational technology event called BET. So it usually welcomes about 35,000 people from around the world to its events, um, but specifically the one in in the UK. Um, And in that role, essentially, I had a team of researchers trying to grapple with all of the different parts of education. So whether that's, uh, you know, more schools focused, post 16, or higher education, or in the workplace, and understand what their needs were. What happened was, I was sort of uh, also thinking about content being more broad than uh, in that instance events and thinking about at the time how podcast was growing in popularity again so they've gone through various waves and I was actually on maternity leave and listening into podcasts to keep myself up to date with the sector so I remember pushing my son around Hackney Marshes you know listening to the TES podcast which was primarily focused on sort of teachers and policy and and sort of the sort of news cycle around that and then also listening to the Ed Surge podcast which was sort of Silicon Valley deal flow technology very specifically EdTech and I thought that there was a gap in a podcast which essentially looked at the innovations that were happening and brought the two together because it was quite there was quite a sort of tendency to be quite lazy at the time around 
edtech companies getting the violin out that they couldn't get into schools and pilot their stuff and then schools sort of thinking or educators broadly thinking well look these guys are just commercial they all they want is you know to be able to make money out of the education sector whereas the reality is if you're going to make money the edtech sector in a quick way you know this may have changed in the last two years but it wasn't the most obvious place to go so the reality was that most people were, you know, had some element of altruistic behavior and really wanted to make a difference. So I thought there was merit in creating something that was bringing people onto the show to surface what they were doing and to kind of aid understanding from both sides. So that was 2016. And so, yeah, I put together my three episodes, which at the time looked at sort of the turnaround story of education in Hackney because that was where I was living at the time and looking at the fact that a lot of ed tech companies in the UK were also based out of Hackney as well and uh, yes I got my first three episodes together and then April 29th 2016 finished my three-month notice period and essentially had taught myself by that point with various YouTube channels and buying some kit just to get going and kind of finished up at my work and launched the EdTech podcast with, with three episodes as I sort of walked out the door. So um, yeah, it's been a wild ride and it's six years this year. So um, there's been obviously some pretty major changes in EdTech during that time. Timing wise, I guess you were a pioneer, certainly. Obviously, the story of bringing the two audiences together, I think is quite unique. And the way you've explained it, it's certainly certainly is more alchemy than serendipity, perhaps. There's a lot of thought gone into that. And, and I guess you didn't know just what change was going to come down the line. So uh, that's a fantastic story. And that leads me nicely in, actually, to just delve a little bit deeper into that education sector, because as you've said there, it's had to be really agile. It's had to adapt really quickly. And how do you think, maybe compared with other sectors, has education coped you know is agility something that gets talked about a lot in education like it does perhaps in the tech sector a little bit more how are they getting on yeah I mean it's a really good question I I think that overall the education sector was one of the sectors that was you know so under pressure and so affected by the pandemic that you know it did incredibly well and if you look at the numbers internationally, absolutely huge numbers of people suddenly picked up remote learning, homeschooling, enabled by technology. So I think, you know, probably for most schools, the story was something like finding out that was happening Wednesday, Thursday, and by Monday, pretty much having all of the infrastructure ready to roll and, and people accessing that the next week. I think there is a, a variety of experience. So this is something that I'm sure is, is shared with you across other sectors. But, you know, some schools that had done the groundwork with digital transformation, with um, professional development of their teams into teaching online or, you know, triangulating school work between parents, the schools and, you know, anyone else who, who might need to access that. They had a kind of head start. Others who perhaps had not made that start found that really difficult and suddenly, you know, were scrabbling around. And there's a great deal of knowledge sharing, which was, again, a huge part of how the education sector supported one another. I think the picture in schools was pretty much dominated by big tech. So if you think about, you know, Google Classroom 
or Microsoft for schools. They pretty much provided the backbone of what was needed. And, you know, the edtech sector is pretty varied. So it can provide sort of back end services as well as, you know, upfront pedagogical services in the classroom. Of course, in this instance, it was the ability to enable kids and some new services popped up. So things like Oakland Academy and some of that as well. Some of what works sometimes is really low tech as well. So obviously, sometimes it was thinking about, you know, how can we use television uh, in this instance to to really kind of plug the gap? But the other thing that happened in the first instance was that lots of ed tech companies offered their services for free for a certain period of time and had huge uptake of those services. And maybe of interest to your listeners is the fact that, you know, I think that there were some instances of um, issues with uptake and then cloud services and scaling, but that kind of all balanced out. And in fact, your numbers at the beginning, so the 40,000 per month was sort of the peak in 2020 when people were really desperate for information around ed tech and in the same way that lots of these companies experienced that that kind of peak and then a leveling off. So I went from about 10,000 downloads a month to 40,000 at the peak and now back around 20,000. So I think a lot of people went through that kind of cycle. And then in higher education, again, I think it's brought to bear some really difficult questions that we were talking about on the podcast for years and now they became absolutely critical. Like what is your hybrid offer how do you work alongside online learning offers? How does that affect your, you know, your fee structure and that kind of thing? So the overall picture was very agile. It was rough around the edges as well. So, you know, we have a much better understanding now of the digital divide and the fact that you can't just assume everyone can pick up and run with these services and or, you know, has the infrastructure or the data or the aptitude to kind of run with it. So I think that is a good thing. And I think it has also evolved our understanding of what we want to do online and then what we want to do in person, which, again, I think is a really healthy thing. So I think now the focus is on impact. So like with um, any other of your sectors, you know, you can do digitization, but how do you actually get to the transformation part and that being ongoing and you know, actually making a significant difference because you're using digital services. And then just very quickly, I mean, I don't have a great view on other sectors. I'm pretty much heads in ed tech, but one of my other hats is working and one of the series partners for vocational learning technology is the UFI Voctech Trust. And through that, I've seen some really amazing innovation and agility for other sectors. So for example, the construction sector and apprentices and needing to like continue training remotely and using technology to help aid that and in the care sector suddenly thinking wow some of our really young students need better support around end-of-life care because the, the sad fact was that you know that was becoming more part of their role so having some really amazing remote support via sort of applications on on those kind of things. So I, I think just generally it proved to to us in our society that, you know, we we sometimes rely on these processes and lean on them and lean back a bit, but actually we have this amazing capacity for agility and ingenuity 
my hope now is that we don't just all retreat back to the comfort of what was before and that we actually get comfortable with having to continually think in that way. And that's partly knowing when to step back from technology. So thinking about agility in the learning learning and development and in the workplace, you know, I think I heard that something like, you know, about a quarter of Microsoft employees actually went off with um, burnout from using their own products. So like the products are great and the technology is great, but now it's about developing the etiquette about how to use them and not just plonking our in-person processes online because that's not going to do anyone any good. Yeah, I think that's it. What I'm, what I'm getting from your answer to that really is it's it's about a coming together of of the different industries. There's no you know one industry being more agile or having having that agile mindset or even being more prepared to embrace technology than another. I think by by different industries and and the tech sector working together, that's what's going to take us all forward. We're certainly on this journey now, so uh, hopefully there isn't any going back. It takes me into what I wanted to ask, get a little bit deeper into that remote learning idea, because obviously that's not new to us. Things like the Open University have have been doing it for some time. But since we've all got more used to the technology, how much further can that go? You you spoke spoke about the, the idea of hybrid learning. And there's a lot of drawbacks to remote learning, obviously the social aspect for the kids and, and everything else. But how how's that conversation moving forward? Is the appetite there and more people being dragged on that journey or um or, or is it going to stabilize? Yeah, it's a it's it's a really interesting question. Um you know, I, I think as you'll you'll know in your role that what we don't want is the worst versions of remote anything to be what consumers or users take home as you know their experience and this is what remote learning is and actually we want to kind of showcase the best of what it can be so for example with edtech I think you know potentially something to speak about later on but like when I started the podcast it was very much about optimization quite sort of Silicon Valley driven ideas of optimization you know we can learn more, more quickly through personalized learning and, and those kind of ideas. And actually, the the ironic thing with learning is that sometimes it, it's about um, spacing learning and making it more difficult as opposed to taking away friction, which is what technology is sometimes quite good at. So I think there's now a better understanding of it's not necessarily about just optimizing services. And actually, it's more about understanding personal motivation and our social nature as well. So, for example, not just connecting us online and running a class how it would be done in a lecture hall with 200 people, but actually thinking about how to be really clever about social learning, about social grouping, about peer-to-peer exchange and that kind of thing. So I think the conversation has moved on. I really liked your comment about, you know, remote learning. I think we've been using 
technology to help aid education and learning for hundreds of years so if you think about you know in the beginning and in the outback when geography and distance was a was a factor people using sort of postal audio to help do sort of distance learning and we had the university of the air and you know all these ideas are are kind of like a continuation and really it's just about removing barriers to learning and access so i think i think it has moved on you know, with universities, again, there is a better understanding of people don't want just one thing or the other. You know, they, they do want the flexibility of being able to access the best learning wherever they are. So I think this is sort of um, something that we'll see spread. You know, we're seeing it in the workplace with um, work from anywhere policies and that now attracting some of the best talent in each sector. So I think, again, in higher education, people just want to access the best learning that is on offer and um, be able to choose whether they do that remotely, whether they sometimes go into the campus and what modules of learning are kind of relevant to them. You know, the expression, the genie is out of the bottle is correct. I think we'll see this kind of quite ugly period for a bit where you'll have people who rally against that because it doesn't suit their business model and the fact that they're kind of quite comfortable making money from the existing model. But it's something that was being eroded anyway. And like with many of the effects of the pandemic, it's it's now going to happen far more quickly, I think. So yeah, I'm quite hopeful overall. I think that we've had a chance now to to work out what we don't like, you know, there's no merit in just sort of being stuck looking at a laptop for eight hours a day. And those excesses of remote learning, I don't think they'll stick around and they don't do the sector any good anyway, because there's far more imaginative ways to use technology. So yeah, quite hopeful. Okay. Uh, Thanks for that, Sophie. I suppose in terms of uh, that technology, we talk about sort of online learning uh, quite a bit. And I, I think obviously technology in education has got the opportunity to be much more of that and Steve and I are from the uh, the days of selling um, you know uh, I suppose the interactive whiteboards were quite a revolutionary in education sort of a, a decade ago and you know projectors before that and uh, all, all those kind of technologies have been around for years now um, and, and I suppose um, the, the question for me is you know over and above sort of online learning what other technologies is education going to be using now, I suppose, in this hybrid world that could possibly be? And I'm thinking sort of virtual reality, um, augmented reality, immersive experiences as a whole, but maybe also tech that helps tailor education programmes to individuals. And, and you touched on, I suppose, that personal learning experience earlier. So, mm. so yeah, what, what's coming downstream that, that can make that whole experience more interesting for, for learners? I think, yeah, personalised learning has sort of been kicking around for a bit. And, you know, it doesn't always mean it's underpinned by AI or machine learning, but it can just be like very clever use of of, of data. You know, I I think where I've seen that work perhaps really well, and I think something that might gain traction is something quite simple. So, for example, some of the chatbots that have been developed to help nudge students and help them make their best choices so you know that might be around the fact that you haven't completed a certain 
module of work and the deadlines coming up or the fact that you seem to be sat in your pants in your bedroom but actually you need to be in a lecture over the other side of the campus in <laughs> um in sort of like 20 minutes so those kind of things where which are really just an extension of some of the the features that we've already got on our on our smartphones and that kind of thing and just drawing down cleverly from information available on the internet I think I think we'll see more of those I think the unsexy sort of administration side is actually where I get really excited about technology and about AI in the sense of technology that just takes away the boring tasks that take time and don't use the best of our human capabilities and being able to offload that, for example, in the instance of schools so that teachers can focus on the creative task of, you know, guiding and nurturing their students' learning. I think that's really interesting. So, you know, quite, again, quite low tech stuff like around, um, you know, voice feedback instead of repeating the same, um, you know, if you're doing maths marking, for example, instead of doing the same marking over and over again, being able to save time by doing that, being able, if you're a school leader, to look at data across the school and in the class and spend your time constructively on areas of learning which are you know more of interest but being able to get to that data really quickly through some cloud-based applications and I think you know generally speaking we've seen a shift more to sort of schools taking up cloud services but there's still a great deal where you know they they've got infrastructure under their desk and that's a sort of legacy thing and schools are really time poor budgets are an issue and so there is still quite a shift to be had and I think where we want to get to is sort of technology being one of those you know formative skills like English or maths and getting away from this notion that you can say oh yeah I don't do technology because it's still quite shocking how many people that is still a, a sentence you can say with a chuckle but you're actually teaching the next generation whose lives this will be that they're going into a sort of digital world so I think we want to move towards that and then on the kind of more futuristic end of things, I had a really interesting chat with a professor of wireless technologies from King's College London, and he was sort of talking about 5G and the ability of, you know, future technologies like that to be able to increase the experience of meeting remotely. So it actually feels something more akin to what we experience when we meet in person. So we're having this call via a sort of audio link. And even when you use a, a video conferencing tool, like an amazing technology, and it's kind of got us all through the last two years, but you don't feel the, you know, the in-person exchange of like body language, heat, all these biometric exchange of information, you don't really pick up. And so the use of that technology, the idea is that you'll be able to have a much more simulated sort of more 3D experience of being in person that will help because ultimately you've got various factors like people want to be able to connect and exchange internationally but also you've got obviously considerations around sustainability and that kind of thing which universities are kind of very aware of as well. So th I think that's some of the interesting uses of technology. I think with VR, AR and immersive I think what's interesting there is in the classroom I'm not so sure because unfortunately you sort of see the pace of change and the focus however I think in workplace learning and training 
in some higher education environments really really interesting so especially around sort of simulation learning where there is like a cost or a risk element so thinking of surgery surgical training I've done an interview with a sort of training part of the nuclear industry so obviously you don't want your young wet behind the ear newbie to come in and sort of start like bashing around in a nuclear power plant So yeah, there's some really interesting applications there. And again, I think it's about access. So, you know, where I have seen it used really constructively in a school near Birmingham, it was about taking kids that perhaps would never have access to certain cultural experiences because of cost or cultural reasons and and, and sort of immersing them and and allowing people in the community to kind of experience that. So again, I think that's, that's quite exciting. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think the first time I came across, uh, I suppose, that virtual reality experience was at uh, a, uh, I think it was a customer event, and uh, they gave us it was one of those cardboard box sort of VR things mm-hmm. that you put on, you put your phone in, and you downloaded this app. And uh, and I'll never forget it because it was like the first time I'd actually seen the sort of technology sort of play on an emotional experience with a lot of yeah. people. And uh, you know, they, they put us into this. Uh, into the rainforest somewhere in Borneo via this app and then the, you basically heard all the noises of the animals and you know it was all quite surreal and you know it was great looking around and then you kind of walked forward and then you went where they were cutting it down and yeah uh, and, and that had a real impact and I think you know in the classroom I think if you can trigger those emotions I think then you've got a very powerful tool yeah um but again we're seeing um, I suppose clients starting to look at as you mentioned training uh, people looking at VR for training warehouse staff uh, of how mm-hmm. to go paper box and where the code will be on the box and and getting them to do that repetitive training without actually cluttering the warehouse floor, etc. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I agree. Um, I was at the Global Teacher Prize, the conference alongside the, I think it's called the Global Education and Skills World Forum one year, and they had some VR experts from Stanford uh, University there. And had a a go with what they were doing and it was essentially you put on the headset and you're on a bus I think you wake up and you're in your own room and then basically it's sort of yeah it was an interaction with homelessness essentially and sort of putting you in the shoes of someone that loses everything around you and then you know you're trying to maintain your own safety and it was really spooky because there's someone sort of trying to grab your bag on the bus so you turn around and suddenly they're there and I think they've got like a whole department around VR and empathy building and I think that's again really fascinating and I loved your Borneo example because I actually when I left school I actually spent seven months in Sarawak and I saw that firsthand sort of walking through the the rainforest and then coming to a bit a massive bit that'd been um, deforested and just yeah very stark so I can imagine I can imagine that working really well. I like uh, the when thinking about immersive experience the recent examples in the sort of teaching of arts really if you look at was it the Van Gogh um, displays at the arts museums it toured the country and it was an absolute fantastic way for people to engage in in the art it brought it all to life and I think it will really inspire kids to get closer to the art than they might normally be able to do so that's my favorite example yeah and and bring them back in time in terms of history and and uh, and things like that I think there's some great applications there and uh, I'm uh, quite jealous uh, of some of the technology because I've always loved technology but uh, I wasn't too keen on education at the time so uh, bringing the two together is uh, is going to be quite interesting and I suppose moving on to something that I, I was thinking about 
in terms of today is that um, a lot of our partners that we work with in our industry, um, you know, sometimes accreditations are, are, you know, if you've got the uh, the correct level of partnerships and accreditations is really important to to, um, to people. And obviously, you know, we, we're all familiar with Ofsted reports. And, you know, if you've, uh, you know, kids are off to school, you're looking at um, the local schools, you know, which one's performing well. Mm. I, I can see a shift, though. And uh, and this came out of my, my daughter's school is um, is described as an Apple distinguished school. So they use Apple technology and they're, they're quite heavily in. They use iPads a lot and it's all quite cool. But I'm aware that some schools that have this accreditation, could tech accreditations, in your opinion, become as important as those Ofsted ratings or that Russell Group status for universities moving forward? Yeah, it's an interesting question, this one. In short, no. They they are obviously, I think what they signal um, that's useful is, you know, the fact that if you are reviewing your digital strategy and you see the school down the road has um, has an Apple Distinguished School merit, then you, it would be sensible to go and talk to them about how they how they went about that. But obviously, that's from one ecosystem perspective. I think from a prospective parent, it depends. I think again, if you if you are keen on the school leveraging technology, I think for, if I was, for example, if it was me. That would be interesting because I know of how that can work, but I would very much take that into consideration alongside everything else that the school offers and the overall culture and that kind of thing. I think what's different to the Ofsted rating is Ofsted is obviously like an independent regulator. And so I think something a bit more similar would be, you know, something like the EdTech Demonstrator School program, where essentially this is like a, a network of schools that are shown to be doing very well in having a well thought through digital strategy and sort of reaching out to other schools or having other schools come to them to to learn from how they've gone about that and to sort of share knowledge around that and those are not sort of system specific so there's that and that's kind of like a a mimicking of something like the research schools network which again is doing the same thing but not technology specific but more focused around research and then yeah I think the Russell group analogy is quite interesting because that is more similar as it's a self-selecting group and it's about representing its interest to parliament so I think yeah I don't know I'm sort of quite ambiguous on that I think what is useful for schools there's a tool there's a couple of tools out there so the British Educational Suppliers Association have one I think it's called Learned or something similar and then there's another one called EdTech Impact. And there's a few others where you can go and you can review different technologies available. And then you can kind of do that in context to some degree by size of school or geography or need, like focus need and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think the fact that it's from one vendor is interesting that said, I think if people understand that, there is, you know, use in it. But there was an interesting article that came out, I don't know, about three or four years ago now. And it was actually interrogating some of these accreditations and, you know, saying we just need to be a bit careful around sponsorships and what they infer. So, yeah, it's an interesting one. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I suppose I suppose from my perspective, but obviously working in the tech sector, 
I'd be mortified if if I got, you know, a parent's evening where you talk about technology, what, what's coming up, and you get that response, as you mentioned before, where they say, oh, I don't do technology. I wouldn't want my mm. kids taught by someone who isn't interested in technology in some format, you know, because I, I think technology can bring that experience, make it come alive and support yeah. education. It's not there to be the education platform. No, no one wants our kids to be taught by robots. But as you mentioned, the chatbots, they could be quite good to support education and, you know, teachers engaging with that technology and using that as a supporting mechanism. I think it is definitely the way forward. Yeah, no, yes, it's a good point. It's incredible how much work is still to be done, really, just even from the point of view of things like infrastructure. So I remember speaking to a small school on the border of Scotland and, um, you know, they, they still didn't have the Wi-Fi or the Internet needed to enable lots of these services. So I think um, there's such a spectrum out there of technologically enabled schools. So I'm all for as well, lots of um, grassroots and sort of teacher-led sharing of what's working. So I I think the old um, teach meet format, which is where teachers basically get together off their own steam and meet up quite often in like the, the school hall after hours and actually just do these little five minute pitches of things that have worked for them and yeah it's just it's just very in context with you know the 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 kind of needs of the school as well okay and uh, I suppose in terms of uh, you know what one of the things that you mentioned going back into the you know the tech sector and some of the the your your earlier comments particularly around you know the, the tech companies are there just to make money the teachers obviously, um, you know, get a little bit frustrated that they're just knocking the door. They haven't got the, perhaps the skills or the budget in some cases. But in terms of, um, you know, you mentioned during the pandemic that some of the uh, tech vendors were, were giving away products to support that. Could tech vendors invest more into the sector to equip um, students for the future and to provide, I suppose, the best learning experience? I think I would go one step removed from that. I think what they could do better and what they have got better on is ensuring that in the cost of whatever the device is or the services that there is significant percentage of that is towards training. So CPD for whether that's teachers or school leaders or whoever's using the technology. So there's a, a proper digital strategy around it. And then I think the benefit of that will be seen in students themselves so for example you know when I started the podcast which was nearly six years ago now there was like a recurring theme which things get bought and then they get shelved basically and there is an opportunity cost obviously to everything that is embedded into the school so if you're spending money on x you're not spending on a teaching assistant or you're not spending that time on something else in the school so the kind of um consensus seems to be to do less things but do them really well but also I think vendors have come a long way to now understanding that if you're going to offer any of this stuff it's not like a consumer product where you take it out of the box and off you go that it does require their own investment in the users so that they have the the professional development they need to actually embed this so that it has impact that said I think tech vendors what they do do really well for students for the future is, you know, there are a number of, say, digital literacy schemes out there. So quite a few would be around, say, for example, coding and are fantastic. So in the States, they have Hour of Code, which is a great website 
where kids can go on. It's usually associated with some really well-known kids characters and that kind of thing. But like really, really intuitive ways to kind of work your way through a coding scheme. You know, my, my son was doing it when he was six and then you can kind of go on from there. So I think I think tech vendors have done a really good job on that front. So coding and other digital literacy things. So whether that be something like the, there are quite a, a few really good gaming competitions and that kind of thing, or around sort of digital filmmaking and things like that. But I think rather than for the students, it's really around, there's a, there is a great need still around teachers, people within universities who for one reason or another, aren't getting this training direct from their employers and will struggle to keep doing their best job without that training, I think. So that would be my my wish on that question. That's a great message to get out. Yeah, great. No, fascinating. Thank you. So just going back from there, coming stepping away from that technology a bit, Sophie, I'm keen to jump back into asking you about your podcast. And I think... Um, as relative beginners ourselves and a lot of people that listen might be thinking about starting their own podcast they might be thinking about being a guest on someone else's or maybe they've just started listening to more podcasts have you got any tips that you could share with people on on sort of how to get involved and and where to start off on that journey yeah definitely um i think 900,000 podcasts got started in 2020 and there is this um, phenomena called pod fade, <laughs> which is, um, you know, which is where that initial enthusiasm and busy schedules or, you know, whatever obstructing factors it may be get in the way and your episodes start coming out sort of uh, less and less. So what would be my recommendations? I think basically there's a whole wealth of information out there. So do the basic reading. Quick plug, I do have a how to launch a podcast course, which is available on the EdTech podcast website. And that's kind of like really just looking at how I went about it. But there are numerous other ways. But ultimately, what you want to do is the most important thing is to think about who your audience is. So who you're actually trying to speak to, what's going to be the different thing about your podcast? Because there will probably be numerous others and it could just be that you're really keen to do it and you know that you'll learn from it but get a sense of what that's all about you know the mechanics of setting up a podcast are pretty straightforward these days so you want to definitely make sure that you've got your podcast submitted to iTunes don't just end up hosting your podcast on your website because um actually where you want it is on the Apple Store, which I think uh, still accounts for about 80% or slightly less of um, podcast listens and then obviously have it somewhere for Android users. So that might be Spotify or others. And yeah, just get going and um, ask for feedback from friends or colleagues. It depends. You may, I think, just work with what you have and the time available. So for example, you may go, okay, we've got an hour every week that's just when we're going to do our podcast and it's not going to be edited and that's what we're happy with or some of the podcasts that I put together have five guests and crazy amount of channels and lots of editing because I quit my job to kind of focus on that so I think just be realistic try in the first instance to get your podcast out at a regular time and at regular duration so whether that's once a week once a month but just try and stick to it for the first you know one or two years 
and um, don't be afraid to mix things up. You know, there's not a right or a wrong way. And I think lots of people now are trying to, yeah, get confused between webinars and podcasts. And from my point of view, a podcast should be a chance to have like a proper conversation. And yeah, in the first instance, I spent about the first six months actually thinking about partnerships that would speak to all the different audience sub-segments. So, you know, with what I wanted to do, it needed to have partnerships for people that were on the education side, on the technology side, on the investment side. So reach out to people that can help share your podcast with their audience and just use it to speak to amazing, interesting people because, uh, yes, it's a great thing and you'll learn loads and make sure you spend as much time marketing the podcast or sharing the podcast as you do recording it because there's no point putting in all the hard work if um, you're keen for people to listen and you've got to get it out there. So those would be my top ones. Happy to uh, answer any questions if people uh, listen to this and have any follow-ups. No, they're, they're great tips. I think I'd add for that, obviously, listen to some podcasts. You know, they all yeah. take different formats and, um, you know, you, you can find the ones that you like and, and almost use their formula or structure to get started. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's great. I think a lot of people are, are just are new to this and enjoy getting involved. Yeah, and uh, I think, uh, you know, we've uh, had uh, some great guests over the uh, last couple of years, and it is fascinating speaking about, I suppose, technology innovation with people who are, you know, out there doing things differently themselves. So, yeah, um, we're constantly learning. So it's a great format for us as well. And I suppose uh, a couple of quick fire questions before we wrap up, going on with that flow of podcasts, what, what would you say is more important for podcasters, a good microphone or a good editor? I would err on the side of a good editor. So I'm a content person, so that's why. But um, no, I think it's really important to have sound that is good to listen to. You don't want terrible sound quality. But ultimately, if someone's really, really fascinating, you're going to listen, you're going to make the effort. So the good editor could just be yourself. Or if you've got reams and reams of um, content, then you can find some fantastic editors on some of the Facebook podcasting groups and what I ended up realizing is that I wanted to keep the editorial control in terms of what goes where when but they can be quite useful just in terms of tidying pieces of audio up so taking out ums and ahs and because that can take a, a long long time if you've got lots of recordings so if I had to choose I would go editor yeah, I think they're quite handy as well because uh, we had uh, one episode where, uh, and the audience would never know where the uh, Wi-Fi drops completely for about three minutes mid-podcast, and uh, <laughs> but to get someone to stitch it all back up together and to make it sound complete was was brilliant, you know. So yeah, I, I do think a good editor is is worth uh, investing in. And my last question in terms of uh, technology is, what is your favourite tech gadget? So I was thinking about this and. Um... It's less a gadget, but via my smartphone, which would be the gadget, I'm probably a bit of a WhatsApp addict. And then also Strava, I do like. All right, okay. So, yeah, geeking out on some of the data around that. My son has a fantastic piece of no-screen technology called a Yoto Radio, which some of your listeners may know about, which is, um, he's a really interesting entrepreneur, actually. The person that put it together came and spoke at one of my events, and so essentially, he's created a sort of podcast kit for kids, whereby you can start different radio channels or podcasts by putting in cards to this box. And uh, yeah, I think he had 
background in the in the music industry but um that's a nice gadget nice gadget for anyone with kids probably under the age of 12 or so but um I was thinking of podcasting stuff I have a nice like road lav mic like one that clips on so you can pretend you're on the um the bbc news but uh <laughs> yeah if i'm if i'm honest it's probably this it's probably some of the software yeah yeah no no great stuff no and thank you very much for uh being our guest today it's been fascinating a sector that we haven't touched on before and uh, great to see what the outlook is uh, is like for the uh, education sector interesting content so uh thank you very much for your time today sophie well, thanks for inviting me on and um I'm actually launching a new startup this year, so I'm trying to educate myself in the world of technology from the standpoint of no code and developers and all the, all of that stuff. So um, I might have to be in touch. <laughs> yeah, happy to guide wherever we can. Thank you, time again. Much appreciated. Thanks for listening to ASM Connected, the podcast from ASM Technologies with guest Sophie Bailey. To find out more about the team at ASM Technologies or about anything discussed in the podcast, visit asmtech.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe now to make sure you never miss an update and check out the other episodes in the series featuring key speakers, futurists and business leaders from across the globe. This is ASM Connected. 